0: Now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little
1: or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period
0: at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer and joining me today, it is Tom Roddy. Tom, hello. Hello, Nat. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. How are you?
1: Yes. Good, thank you. Good, thank you. Um, Being kitten shopping or shopping for a, oh. a, a kitten on the way. Um, oh. Yes. So we'll have another uh, cat purring at the background on the, on the pod soon <laughs> as well as
0: Gregor's. <laughs> I look forward to it, but how lovely, how sweet. But you've got one and it, the, the kitten will be arriving soon, I hope. August 19th. So <gasps> oh,
1: Maybe, maybe the long. next time I'm on the pod, she'll be here.
0: Oh, I look forward to that. Well, there's lots to come on this game podcast and we're going to start with the big managerial news over the weekend as Eddie Howe left Bournemouth. The Cherries announced on Saturday evening Howe had departed by mutual consent, marking the end of a 25-year association with the club as a player and then manager across two spells. Howe, who had a year remaining on his contract at Bournemouth, said his decision to leave was in the club's best interests. And the 42-year-old told fans in an open letter that it was time for the club to go in a new direction. It is understood Bournemouth were willing to let Howe continue to lead them after the return to the championship, but he felt his reign was nearing its conclusion and that the club would benefit from a fresh start. So, Tom, did, did this decision over the weekend surprise you at all?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't. It didn't really come as a, a surprise, really. Um, I mean, in, it was only a few days after they'd gone down, Bournemouth had gone down, that the the news filtered out that Bournemouth had accepted a bid from uh, Man City for Nathan Ackie. Um And although that was one of the departures we did expect to happen, it, it felt like an indication of where Bournemouth were. Um, where they would be this summer, um, that kind of offering so quickly and, and not too much negotiation. And, of course, you've got the likes of Callum Wilson and Josh King and David Brooks, players who potentially could be following. And it probably just feels, for Eddie Howe, a little bit like the club is being stripped apart. I'd say, Um we we spoke uh, before about the possibility of this this happening that he could leave on on the pod after Bournemouth were relegated. And, and Gregor made a really good point at the time, saying that you know it it, it, it would end on a sad note, um, uh, considering the years he's had, the affiliation he's had with that club. Um, I think this is very much Eddie Howe's decision um, and I think he just sees it as, as the right time. I think otherwise he's, he's left with a club to completely re- rebuild to a certain extent. Mm.
0: But of course, Tom, when you think of Bournemouth, you can't help but naturally think of Eddie Howe as well. They kind of go hand in hand, don't they? So have they lost their greatest asset, would you say?
1: Yeah, uh, I think... <sighs> The, the impact of this decision is going to be far greater on Bournemouth as a club. Um, I mean, you have, we've spoken on the pod quite a few times about how clubs and different owners sort of view their managers. And we see the way certain clubs sort of chop and change. We've seen Chelsea doing it for many years We've seen Watford doing it uh, <laughs> three times this season. Um, and there's this kind of view you get of uh, some clubs like Watford that the manager is, is very much interchangeable. They're just a pawn where you take them in, out and put someone else new in. And that gives you the impression that they're the the manager isn't viewed as, as the most important person at that club. At Bournemouth, that's completely different, Um because Eddie Howe, you speak to anyone associated with Bournemouth who's in, involved in the day-to-day goings-on at, at that club, and Eddie Howe is, he just has his, his fingers in, in everything. Um, and, that's, and that's worked. It's not a negative thing. It's worked uh, so well for them. Um, I mean, I saw his departure being compared to... Um, as like Sir Alex Ferguson leaving Man United. And that was that was scoffed at a little bit. But I think the, it wasn't ne- necessarily the, the success um, at, that he had. It was more the way that he went about his work and the relationship that Alex Ferguson had at Manchester United and that Eddie Howe had at Bournemouth. Um, with a huge control, which is so rare in the modern game. I think that was the comparison. I mean, you, you just think, now, where did Bournemouth go with this?
0: Hmm. Wasn't that long ago when things looked rosy for Bournemouth and, and Eddie Howe himself was being linked with Arsenal, there was talk of Everton, even the England job at one stage. Has his stock fallen and, and where is he at right now?
1: I, th- I think it, it definitely has fallen. It's definitely fallen, um, but I still think it's high. I think when these when these things happen, when when someone leaves the club, um, you then I think over time you then judge their period of work at that club. Um, and I think throughout the last few months at Bournemouth, certainly weeks, we were looking at Bournemouth and, and Eddie Howe and thinking. Well, the the recruitment wasn't great and it wasn't great because you had someone like Dominic Solanke coming in for nineteen million pounds, which was a hell of a lot of money. I mean, I think I think Aki was the was the record signing which was twenty million. So you're you're close to Bournemouth's record signing. And that was two years ago. And he scored three Premier League goals in those two years. And all of them came in the last four games of this season. And then you've got someone like Dan Juma, who came in uh, last summer for 13 million. And he hasn't really had a huge impact. Um, And as you said, Nat, you know, this is Eddie Howe's a guy who not so long ago was being spoken about as a possible successor to 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 the England job so I'm almost a certainty about it um and i'm i'm not so sure that there would kind of be the, the clamoring that there there would have been a few years ago um if if garrett southgate left the job now but i mm-hmm. still think eddie howes the i still think what he's done at bournemouth what he he built that's such an asset um to have now and i think if you had Lower run just beneath the elite, lose their manager through sacking or through um, being uh, headhunted from a bigger club, then I think Eddie Howe would be in contention for it because of what he does, because of what he builds and because I think probably his greatest asset is improving players.
0: So for you, does he still have a place in the Premier League or do you think he'll have to start lower?
1: I think he deserves to be in the Premier League. I think he's what he has done with Bournemouth shows that he's a Premier League manager. I just think the difficulty is there are a lot of very good managers out there. I mean, you look at Chris Hughton, who is an extremely good manager, and he hasn't been able to get into work this year, this season. Yeah. Um, you know, so... And what do you do as a as an out of work manager? You 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 either you either wait uh, for a vacancy to come up, and that usually comes in sort of sacking season, which tends in the Premier League it tends to be that early winter period, doesn't it? Sort of November December, where clubs get a little bit itchy and a little bit panicky about being far below the, the expectations, and but then you've got to be you know that sort of cliche of being parachuted into a club, and you you've got to build very quickly, and you've almost got to have that bounce. And I I think for Eddie Howe it would it, I don't know whether that would work or not. And, and I suppose that's actually the big issue. You do, I don't know whether it would work, and I don't think many people would know whether it would work because he's not been that type of manager. He's been someone who's come in and built and built and built, and that's why I think. The championship could be a temptation if if you had a big, ambitious club who said, we've seen what you've done at Bournemouth um, and we want you to do it for us as well. Um, we've got the money, we've got the ambition, um, then I think that could be really tempting to him. But I suppose the big issue for Eddie Howe now is that this next move is a really, really important one because... If he goes, if he waits for that sort of sacking season and gets um, gets a job and it doesn't go well, he doesn't get that bounce and he ends up getting sacked a few months later. Then that really, just talking about where his stock is and the kind of credit in the bank that he's got over the last five years at Bournemouth. Well, I think that decreases significantly if if the next job doesn't go well and quickly um, whereas a championship club I think it would be a little more forgiving maybe um, so I think I think he certainly deserves to be a Premier League manager um, but his next moves is a big one
0: The train is now approaching Junction at Platform Passengers Airport, please stay on board Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Now the stage is set for Tuesday's showdown at Wembley as Brentford take on West London rivals Fulham in football's richest game for a place in the Premier League. Deloitte have this week reported that Brentford stand to earn up to around £265 million over a five-year period if the promoted club survive their first season in the top flight providing, of course, they get past Fulham as well in the championship playoff final. The mind games have already started with Brentford's Emiliano Malkonda saying Fulham fear facing his side ahead of that massive game at Wembley. This is what he said. I think Fulham are fearing us because we have won against them two times this season and they haven't scored. I think we are favourites, he says. We've won twice against them this season, so I don't see why we shouldn't be favourites. They are a bigger club, but we have played very well against them. We are 3-0 up in the two games and I'm... Very confident saying that because I know we are the better team. We are so ready, he goes on to say. We're so full of energy. We've been dreaming of playing this game the whole season. We know we had the chance to go up directly, but it was our aim to get to the top six and play in the playoff and get to the final. So we are very ready. i tell you what, Tom, it's pretty strong stuff. And as a Brentford fan, that's the kind of thing you want to be hearing. Um it's a bit like the manager, Thomas Frank, who has always been quite bullish in, in, in recent games, that's for sure. But when you hear what you have to hear from Emiliano Marcondes, they're talking up Brentford's being favourites. Do you think they're favourites?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think what's what's good about the uh, listening to um, the mindset that they seem to have that Thomas Frank has, has given them heading into this game is that missing out on that that automatic promotion, which they did, of course, you know, they, they could have gone up that night. Um, and that was a, that was a big disappointment. Um, so what they've done is, is kind of realigned the thought process. And the, the target was to end up in the top six. And I think after that game, that, that game against Swansea, was so important um, I think they played so well they were back to back to their best really and and as you said there was there was this bullishness about Thomas Frank which is great to see I mean he's a, he's a brilliant character um, it, it's you can't it's so hard to know for a final a lot of form goes out the window um, yeah. and the, the season goes out the window to a certain extent um, but I think the good thing for Fulham is that it sounds like Alexandra Mitrovic is going to be fit. Scott Parker has been talking today and he said he is fit and I mean he is the kind of guy who who can win a game on his own. He will take those opportunities. Um the, Tony Cascarino's written a piece for the Times today um, saying that, that Parker shouldn't actually put him in though which which I'd urge people to read because it's it's really it's a it's a good argument. Um about the, the fact that he kind of putting him back in muddles up their, their flow and they've been doing so well in the lead up with the games against Cardiff. Um, so it would mess them, mess them about a little bit. Um, I think for, for me though, Brentford do go into it as the favourites because of this season, because they have been, um, I think they've been for me, certainly the, the one of the best teams I've enjoyed watching them. I actually think more than Leeds and, um, and I think it's because of the surprise. We expected Leeds to be great this year, um, but they are just—they're—they're they're refreshing to watch. You don't—they—they—they're not, they, not reliant on one player. That attack, um, the, the kind of cliché BMW attack that they have now. I think that can get in behind Fulham. Um, they've got a strong defence. So long as Pontus Janssen doesn't look to do a sort of, kind of kick <laughs> <laughs> defensive techniques in the.
0: Hopefully, final. he's got those kind of errors out the way ahead of Just that one at Wembley. Yeah, exactly. Just in
1: time, um, but no, they're for me, they're favourites. <laughs>
0: I mean, you mentioned Mitrovic there. As you rightly say, he wasn't involved in the two legs against Cardiff, but Scott Parker's confirmed that he does have a fully fit squad to choose from now. Do you think, regardless of what Tony Cascarino has had to say, that someone like Mitrovic could be the difference for whether or not Fulham win or lose this one? Yeah, I think
1: that's the thing with finals, isn't it? They, they, they can be They tend to be very cagey. So, and I think Brentford need to really resist to that because they're at their best when there's a bit of sort of freedom um, about them and they, they kind of go for it a bit. Um, and I think in in... in there, there, tend to be few opportunities, and I think Mitrovic is the is the kind of guy who who can take them. I mean, he's obviously you know the, the top scorer in the division before the, before the playoffs, um, and he is he's a Premier League quality striker, um, and he's the kind of guy who who will will send Fulham back up. Um, I think it's a, the thing is as well is it's just a massive game for Fulham because. If Brentford go up there if Brentford don't go up their model is is based on um,
0: is based on growth growing and growing and growing um, you see Neil
1: Mopay leaving last year but I mean you Could say better than me now whether you've missed him, but it doesn't feel like it. No,
0: <laughs> no. the weird thing, the strange thing, as the strange thing is, we, we thought we would miss him because mm. it didn't look like we were going into the market to find a replacement for him. Little did we know that we had one, he was just playing mm. on the wing. So, um, yeah, it, it's bizarre, but the Brentford system and, and in terms of recruitment you know, it's been brilliant of, of late. And we've always seemed to find somebody to replace that player that is outgoing. And uh, yeah, it seems all to be clicking right now. And I just wonder though, very quickly, Tom, Fulham, do have a lot of expertise coming into this one, not only Mitrovic, but there's a whole host of other players. Uh, let's not forget they have spent 14 seasons in the Premier League, whereas Brentford yet to do so. Brentford's squad doesn't really contain any top division experience, whereas Scott Parker can pick as many as eight of the players who took part in winning the 2018 playoff final against Aston Villa. So, does experience matter when coming into when coming into a game such as this?
1: It does. It does. It definitely does. I mean, you look at in in the league um, and you could possibly even kind of compare that going into the final day. It's a very different scenario, but you could compare that a little bit. I mean, West Brom's team was was full of ex-Premier League players. You've got Charlie Austin up front, you've got Jake Livermore in midfield and... Perhaps it was that experience that it was it was very much a kind of falling stumble over the line, but perhaps that was what got them over the line in the end. Um, so I think it's really key. And in a game like this, your these are going to be new experiences for those players. Um, you know, as you as you said, the, the Brentford team hasn't experienced these um, these kind of games before a game of such magnitude where you know you've got you've got absolute sort of elation on one side and despair on the other um and the the goal the whole season has been to get to the premier league it has been for most of those clubs in the championship the ambitious clubs in the championship you've worked so hard to get to that that position and you you've come so close um i think those who have done it before will will know how to get there um so I think it, it it will be key for them, and I think those players who have done it before um, will be able to pass on that message, and it, it won't be so overawing. I actually wonder whether the the whole kind of ghost game, the empty Wembley Stadium, will be a huge brene- uh, benefit. A benefit
0: well, I like Brentford. benefit though. Benefit's good. <laughs> um
1: good. Yes, I think it will be a, a benefit. It could be a benefit, to Brentford, because it's not, it's still hyped up, but you don't have the, because the, it's the crowd and the tension that comes from the crowd that builds it even more so, especially in Wembley with 90,000 fans. So I think that could really benefit them. And I think if they're playing at, at their best, um, they'll be a Premier League
0: team. Well, in a moment, we're going to talk to Tom about the 1946 FA Cup final, but we just want to take a quick look at the 2020 version. And, Tom, as we know, Arsenal were 2-1 winners over Chelsea to win the FA Cup for a record 14th time to qualify for the Europa League as Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scored twice. And then, of course, he dropped to the trophy as well. The less said, the better about that one, I'm sure. But it's that all classic debate, isn't it, Tom, of latter-day Premier League football in terms of what is more successful to a team finishing in the top four Or finishing with a domestic trophy. So, when you look at Chelsea and you look at Arsenal, who's had the better season?
1: It's a really good point, actually, um, in terms of sort of comparing comparing the two. um, You know, having having silverware to show for it. But I suppose the the problem is in the modern game. If Chelsea and Arsenal were competing to get a player now this summer. and the finances were the same. A player is going to be far more attracted to a club that can offer, and it's Chelsea in this occasion. Uh, the Champions League—that's what the players want now. Um, you know, we're, we're going to talk about Reg Harrison's story at Derby, and for the for the FA Cup for so many years, that was sort of the Holy Grail, and that was what everyone wanted to win. But now it's the, the Champions League is the new FA Cup. Um, And I think given what Frank Lampard has had to contend with at Chelsea, with the transfer ban, with the loss of Eden Hazard, with the um, very quick, rapid integration of youth academy players to bring them through, I think that just edges it really. above Arsenal in terms of a better season. It's a very different season as well. I mean, it seemed like so long ago you had Unai Emery in the, in the dugout and Freddie Jumberg taking interim charge. And, and I think Mikel Arteta comes across as an extremely competent pair of hands and suddenly the future looks extremely bright for Arsenal. And I, I think almost for, for him... To a worrying extent, I think it feels that he might be a little bit concerned that um, the the hierarchy at Arsenal think this is going far too swimmingly um, or going too so swimmingly that that he doesn't doesn't need reinforcements. And I think we've heard him talking about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, the need for him to stay, the need to strengthen this summer so that they can be a club that is going to be competing for the Champions League next year.
0: Well, speaking of FA Cup finals, you've got to make sure that you read Tom's brilliant piece on the Times Online entitled, His boots were in a brown paper bag, but his wife sat near royalty at Wembley. Meet Reg Harrison, the oldest living FA Cup winner. He played outside right in the 1946 final with his Derby team beating Charlton 4-1. The Harrison family talked to Tom Roddy about their remarkable father. And I, I've read this, Tom, and it's a lovely heartwarming Piece um, for those that might not know the story of Reg Harrison, and I'm sure Derby fans right now are screaming at us, saying how how do you not know Reg Harrison? Tell us all about this 97 year old FA Cup winner.
1: He's, he's quite a character and he's had um, he's had quite a life as well um, I mean the the idea was for the day of the FA Cup final was to to try and get a story which was a little bit a little bit different something that might stand out on the day um, and so going to something like this trying to find the oldest living FA Cup winner it also I, I love these stories because they they transcend kind of football and sport in a way because you're you're in a different era um I mean, Reg was born in 1923, so you know mo- mo- most of us wouldn't have wouldn't wouldn't have an idea of what life was like in the in the 30s or the 40s or anything like that. So you're almost it's almost like you're you sat next to your, your grandparents listening to a period of time you just don't recognise. And um, I mean, Greg was um, Greg Greg he's um, Greg Gregor's on my mind now, isn't he? Um, <laughs> um reg reg left school at, at 14 and he became a painter and decorator and he, he used to walk down to this uh store in in derby center um and pick up the tools and equipment and everything that he needed and it all be loaded onto this cart and he would actually pull it to the to the job which could be two or three miles away which as his his daughter and uh, Pat and son-in-law Bill said it sounds really quite rather Victorian Um, (laughs) but the the shame is that I mean Reg Reg hasn't been quite so well recently in fact he had pneumonia during lockdown incredibly he's kind of came out of hospital from that but he's also got undiagnosed dementia so um, at his home in Derby, this bungalow that he moved into in 1966, he's got this memory wall, and I spent time talking to Pat and to, to Bill. They're, they're a lovely family, and it's a, it's a lovely life that he's he's lived. Um, about that kind of memory wall, and about the all the little stories that come with it, and um, it, it's also as well as football, it's kind of this this. Um, story of, of love and loss because Reg had a, a son Michael who died of leukaemia age 7 mm. and he still has his school cap, he still has his cricket bat, the bow and arrow and, and an image of, of Michael as a schoolboy in his school uniform is on, on this memory wall and then there's also Reg's wife Wynne who he was absolutely devoted to um, during Reg served in the in the Second World War he was up he was up in Newark um, for, for for training, and Win would cycle on a tandem bike with Reg's sister, who's also called Win. Um, and they would they would cycle up, make the forty mile journey there and the forty mile journey back just to see him for a few hours. And they they met when Reg was eighteen, and she died. Win died a couple of years ago, and and Pat told me about how. They would sit, even up until then, they would sit in this living room um, just holding hands each night. And it was just this
0: oh.
1: l- story of absolute devotion to each other. But on the football side of things, it's just it's it's a window into sort of this total contrast to the modern game. As as you said, the, the title of the piece about his boots being in a brown paper bag. Red would also <laughs> um, travel to to. Um, to the training where Derby would, Derby County would train, which was about two or three miles from the, the baseball ground where Derby used to play. And, and instead of any sort of training ground facilities, they would get changed in this old abandoned um, railway carriage. <laughs> uh, and, and, then, and then the the manager, who was Stuart McMillan at the time, he, he would pick a village and he'd tell them, off you go, run there. They they'd go and they'd run back, and that would be their their, their pre season training pretty much. Um, and but Reg wasn't actually meant to play uh, in the final. It was it was no. It was Charlton Athletic who Derby played that year. It was the first one after the war, and Reg was Reg was one of the younger players. It was it was known as the Veterans Cup uh, final, and Reg was twenty two, and he. Sammy Crooks was the outside right, as they were called um, back then, and, and Sammy got injured just before the quarterfinal, and Reg was called up, and he, he he ended up playing and was playing well, and Sammy had recovered from injury just before the final, but Stuart McMillan decided to stick with the team, and Reg played, and he, he I think they, Pat said that he got about 100 tickets for the final, and they used to get... Um, Pat and, uh, Reg and Win would get a knock at the door each night, and there'd be someone who'd come in and they hoped to get a ticket from Reg <laughs> to go to the final. But uh, in the end, um, I think he just gave all the tickets to everyone in their street.
0: Oh, and was that 100 tickets each they got? Yeah, to each of the
1: players. They had 100 wow. tickets. Yeah. That's um, some number. I know different to, different to the modern and this you know this is this is it um they it's totally different and and of course again the the story that 's teased in the in the headline is that on the day of the the final um the the they had these hundred tickets, but the wives had been given a, a section to sit in as well um, and it was out in the open air, so the senior <laughs> players in the in the team went to the management and said, we're not going to play in this final if our wives aren't given a better seat. So they ended up being sat next to the Royal Box.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's it's such a lovely piece that sort of just shows you how times have changed. But Mm. I have this wonderful picture of Reg carrying those boots in a brown paper bag. You see, Kieran Tierney must have learnt (laughs) off Reg. Uh, You know, it was a fashion starter, was our Reg. Um, There's been some lovely comments that I want to read out as well from some of our Times readers about this story. Um, David Jones reflects on it by saying, it's a great story, brings back memories of a much simpler world we used to live in, getting enjoyment via very simple pleasures. Holidays in Newquay after an 11-hour drive in a three-wheeler. Because this is true, isn't it? Reg didn't like driving on motorways, did he?
1: Yes. Yeah, they had... um... They had this three-wheel green, bright green reliant <laughs> Robin. Him and him and Win, and uh, and they would holiday every year. They never had a passport, either of them. They'd holiday every year in in the UK, and most often down in Newquay. The the Cornish coastline was their favourite place to go. And they they would they would pick up they would pack up the car, this little reliant three-wheel reliant Robin on a on the morning. Wynne would have this. Um, a picnic basket with a flask of tea and and sandwiches all made and they'd make the journey down to Nuki and it'd take 11 hours because oh. Reg was driving at 35 miles an hour in his three-wheel line <laughs> robin
0: it's uh, you can just picture it can't you although the annoying thing is you think of only fools and horses when you think of one <laughs> of those kind of cars but I'm sure that's what, what it was um Billy's also reacted. He said, there's an elderly gentleman on my street who is pushing 100 and can talk very lucidly about being at the 1934 FA Cup quarterfinal as an eight-year-old boy, which is City versus Stoke, watching a very young Stanley Matthews in front of 84,000 people. This is living history and it is fascinating. And Chris Cosgrove also says this, 97 not out and still going strong. Fond memories of Red shouting encouragement from the sidelines on Stopbrook Rec. We knew Reg's pedigree and we were all desperate to get a word of praise from him. I'll always remember Reg shouting discipline when our formation fell apart during training sessions. Throughout his long life, Reg's love of football never wavered. He is a credit to the game. Reg was my hero when I was a kid and he still is. And, and that's the kind of lovely reflection you get from a piece like yours, Tom. You, you get those who are the true fans who will read that article and just brings back so many happy memories.
1: Well, I think the thing as well is, uh, as Chris referred to, uh, Reg's life after um, after he retired after the war, he went back to uh, painting and decorating, and then a guy who worked for the council got in touch because he knew of Reg's sort of passion for football and his his kind of ability to to within the community and. He he got him setting up these community centres. He had this idea of having twelve community centres in the area. And last year, Reg ended up being leading out Derby County football team. Uh, it was Frank Lampard at the time, and it was because he'd been given the freedom of the city for his oh. services to the community. And he he would he would uh, his his weekdays were sent was spent. Uh, gardening uh, in this bungalow he'd he'd they used to live him and Wynne used to live in the city centre and he had uh, they had a little backyard and he had all his painting and decorating stuff in and Wynne said I want a I want roses a garden with a bungalow with a garden with roses and for her 40th birthday Reg bought her a a bungalow in Derby with a rose garden (sighs) in front (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and it oh. cost three
1: thousand pounds, which shows oh. how, how long ago it is, too. But he he would um, he would spend his Saturdays either at Derby County watching them, or he'd just walk down to the local park. And again, there were there were a few comments of people saying, "I remember him watching us." Um, and Pat said that she she lived not far down the road. And she said if the wind was going in the right direction, she could hear her dad's shout.
0: No, <laughs> yeah. that's tremendous, isn't it? Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely to hear the story of, of Reg the footballer and then Reg the husband and and, mm-hmm. and how that 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 relationship with wins sort of survived so many testing things like the, the, like the war and everything like that. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece, Tom. Thank you. Well, remember, for more articles like this, make sure you subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And that is it for now. Many thanks to Tom. We hope you've enjoyed this latest pod. And guess what? We will be back with you on Thursday.